What's up, everyone? This is Anthony Pompliano. Most of you know me as Pomp. You're listening to the Pomp Podcast, simply the best podcast out there. Now let's kick this thing off. Dan Tapiero is the founder and CEO of 10T Holdings. In this conversation, we talk about how macro investors are looking at Bitcoin, Ethereum, and other digital assets. We also talk about the recent investments that Dan and his team has been making in growth stage rounds of crypto companies. I really enjoyed this conversation with Dan, and I hope you do as well. Before we get into this episode, though, I want to quickly talk about our sponsors. Today's episode is sponsored by the Bitcoin 2022 Conference. Bitcoin 2022 is the largest Bitcoin event in the world that takes place April 6th through the 9th in Miami Beach, Florida. All four days will be jam-packed with exclusive content, exciting announcements, and an incredible lineup of Bitcoin speakers, artists, and leaders. Day one is industry day for enterprising Bitcoiners who are looking to build a business or career within the ecosystem. Days two and three are general conference days featuring speakers like El Salvador President Nayib Bukele, CEOs like Michael Saylor, Elizabeth Stark, Jack Maulers, Adam Back, and hundreds more. The conference caps off on the fourth day with the world's first and largest Bitcoin music festival, Sound Money Fest, headlined by rapper and fellow Bitcoiner Logic, featuring artists K. Flay, Mo, Royal, and The Serpent, Apache, Asadi, and more. Stay tuned for the upcoming lineup announcement. Last year's conference sold out, and this year's is on pace to be three times larger, so make sure you grab your tickets before it's too late. Visit b.tc slash conference to learn more. Again, that's b.tc slash conference to learn more. Ticket prices increase on January 14th. Use promo code POMP for 10% off, and I will see you in Miami. Today's episode is brought to you by Fundrise. You all know I believe that the best investors both understand and seek out extreme asymmetry. Fundrise is here to help you do just that. It's the largest direct-to-investor real estate investment platform out there, giving you the opportunity to achieve upside of an asset class previously reserved for institutions and high net worth individuals. That's right. Fundrise is making high-end private market real estate investing accessible to everyone via an easy-to-use automated platform. Its 1 million users already know that the investment with Fundrise is capable of producing strong appreciation returns and income generation while helping to stabilize a diversified portfolio. That's more important now than ever in our inflationary environment. See for yourself how over 190,000 other investors have built a better portfolio with private real estate. It takes just a few minutes to get started with as little as $10. Go to fundrise.com slash pomp today. And for a limited time, you'll get $10 when you place your first investment. Again, that's fundrise.com slash pomp. Go check it out. And when you make your first investment, they'll give you $10 on top of it. Fundrise.com slash pomp. Today's episode is brought to you by Brave. Brave Wallet is the first secure crypto wallet built natively in a Web3 crypto browser. What's Web3? Web3 is freedom from big tech and Wall Street, more control and better privacy. But there's a weak point in Web3, your crypto wallet. Most wallets are browser extensions, a Web2 technology. That means the same old risks, app spoofing, phishing scams, and theft. Brave Wallet is different. Brave Wallet is the first secure wallet built natively in a Web3 crypto browser. No extension required. With Brave Wallet, you can buy, store, send, and swap assets, manage NFTs, even connect other wallets and dApps, all from the security of the best privacy browser on the market. Whether you're new to crypto or a seasoned pro, it's time to ditch those risky extensions. It's time to switch to Brave Wallet. Download Brave at brave.com slash pomp and click the wallet icon to get started. Again, go download Brave at brave.com slash pomp and click the wallet icon to get started. 
All right, let's get in this episode. I hope you guys enjoyed this one. Anthony Pompliano runs Pomp Investments. All views of him and the guests on his podcast are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Pomp Investments. You should not treat any opinion expressed by Pomp or his guests as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of his personal opinion. This podcast is for informational purposes only. Dan, are you there? I'm here, Pomp. How are you? Good. You're busy. You, you've been busy. You've been investing in everything. I, I said, we got to get Dan on here immediately. What's going on? Well, I don't know about everything. I mean, I don't think anyone can keep up with uh, Andreessen. He seems to come out uh, at least twice a week with something. Um, <laughs> you know, you know, look, we, we focus on the mid to late stage companies. And so, um, you know, actually, there aren't, you know, there really aren't as many of those as there are the smaller investments, as you know. Um, so we've just been steady. I mean, it's, it's been sort of one investment a month, basically. It's just, I think all the news releases came out at the same time. Got it. All right. So talk to me about, uh, you, you operate in this like billionaire secret circle, which is all these macro hedge fund managers. You're laughing because you're like, yeah, pretty much, uh, over the last, I don't know, 30 years, right? This is everyone from the Paul Tudor Jones to the Stanley Druckenmillers to the George Soros, just literally the entire cadre of, uh, successful hedge fund managers all know each other. They've all been working together for a long time, uh, in various forms and capacities. What are they all saying right now about Bitcoin, Ethereum, and crypto in general? Are they still as excited as they were kind of when we talked in 2021 uh, and prices were going up? Or what's the story right now? Well, I mean, I think there's a big bifurcation, um, certainly by age and focus, um, you know, within the hedge fund business. I mean, I would say the macro early adopters, and you've got, of course, Mike Novogratz and uh, Dan at Pantera. I mean, those are macro guys that uh, have been in it for a while. They're, you know, younger than some of the guys you've mentioned, Tudor Druck, uh, Julian, of course, I think being almost 90. Um, you know, I, I think that, you know, if you take a look at um, what Alan Howard has been doing, and again, Alan, um, you know, founder of Brevin Howard, largest macro hedge fund in London, uh, he's become very active in the space. Um, made a very strong transition from, you know, just being a guy who had some Bitcoin and Ethereum to deciding that, you know, this is going to be a very important focus for him. So I think, um, you know, you're seeing a few of the younger guys, but again, Alan is younger than that uh, that older cohort, uh, cohort. So, you know, Paul Tudor Jones, I think is, you know, and he said this publicly, I mean, he, I think he has exposure but he hasn't gone all in uh, on the space. And I think the older guys are, you know, look, if you've made your billions of dollars um, trading in the traditional world, the legacy world, you have your framework, uh, you really have to make a commitment uh, of time, such as money to really, you know, you know, dive deeply. And I think um, they're just, you know, it, it's, a, it's a high barrier to entry. You've got to do a lot of work. Look, you've done, uh, a lot of digging yourself. You've been in this space for a while. You know it deeply. It's not, you know, it, it's not that easy, right? Yeah. Um, you, you really have to do the work. And so I think, you know, I don't think there are any real macro guys, by the way, under 35. Meaning I think that that, that was a world that, you know, has come and gone. Uh, I don't, you know, macro hedge fund business 
is not today what it was in the 90s and 2000s. Uh, I think the guys who would have gone into that world back then are the young guys who yeah. are the entrepreneurs pushing the you know envelope uh, in this space now. I mean, I don't know what you think about that. Um, yeah, I, I agree with that. I, I think that there's a yeah. huge piece. Like if you go back and um, uh, uh, just read the stories or watch, you know, there's like YouTube documentaries about everyone from the Stanley Druckenmillers, the George Soroses, the Paul Tudor Joneses. And, and you really kind of understand like how they ended up building this. A lot of it was they were enticed by uh, capitalistic pursuits. Uh, they were looking for asymmetry in markets and naturally uh, things like macro were the place that you ended up. And I think that uh, there's a lot of young people to your point that are looking for the exact same uh, kind of asymmetry and capitalistic pursuits. And like, where does that exist today? It's not in uh, bond yields. It's not in, you know, FX and, and that type of stuff. It's in crypto. And so naturally that's where they, uh, they end up. And, and so it makes a lot of sense. Yeah. But, you know, Pop, also remember that in the you know late seventies, I mean, Soros founded quantum in 68. I mean, that was really the first or 69. It was really the first, uh, hedge fund, in a sense, that had that you know offshore uh, master feeder structure that was you know a deferral of your gains. Um, you know, at that time, those markets were early stage. I mean, yeah. gold was depegged, um, you know, in the early '70s and started trading, and that sort of you know unleashed a huge amount of uh, energy and and capital into the currency markets. I mean, things were pegged before more or less, and then they were depegged and the treasury bond market, for instance, really didn't exist uh, in any significant way in the late 70s. So, I mean, I, I kind of think of crypto and Bitcoin a little bit as like very early stage markets. And, you know, think about, you know, there weren't even bond treasury options uh, in the 70s. I think it was just in 79. I'm not sure that it was introduced the, the exact the exact year, but it sort of reminds me today of a company we own, Deribit. I mean, Deribit has 90%, over 90% market share in Bitcoin and Ethereum options trading. And I just think to myself globally, you know, could you imagine in 1979 or 80 having 90, whatever, 5% market share of all the options traded on treasury bonds uh, in the world? Um, so to me, there are, you know, there are similar comparisons. Another one is to sort of the early mortgage-backed security market. I mean, the market was not invented in the 70s. It was only Lou Ranieri in the early 80s at Solomon Brothers that really, in quotes, I would say, invented the mortgage-backed uh, market. And so it's sort of the same thing. Um, it's just, I think the level of, well, mortgage-backs are pretty complex, but the level of complexity to understand how DeFi works, um, you know, how all of these various, what I call subsectors, uh, underneath the digital asset ecosystem work is complex, right? Yeah. Um, but to me, early stage markets, asymmetry, young guys want to get in. There aren't older guys there to stop them. You know, there's no one really to compete with. Um, and so, you know, you see these emerging uh, protocols and blockchains that, you know, there actually are some new use cases. Uh, you don't need the, I think, the intense security functionality of Bitcoin for every single transaction. You see this, of course, with NFTs now coming to life. So, you know, it's a big world. It's just started. And, um, you know, I, I said for the older guys, I think it's tough. I think anyone under 35 that's, you know, entrepreneurially, entrepreneurial and, and, and looking to make 
you know, money, this is where they're coming. Talk to me about kind of mid to late stage company valuations. Obviously, we've seen all the Fed's kind of, uh, you know, tough talk and we've seen public market valuations start to come down and and, uh, multiples compress. Are you seeing uh, any of that happening in the mid to late stage in terms of multiple compressions or valuation kind of impact? And kind of a, a subset of that question is uh, I've seen a lot of people talking online about these like crossover funds where they actually may be accelerating some of the private market response to public market movements because some of those investors are the exact same. It used to be public and private investors were different. Now that we get crossover funds, like maybe they're, they're more tied hand in hand. What are you seeing in the private market? Yeah. I mean, I think valuations have been very steady. There have been things that you know, have been at crazy multiples. I mean, you look at fire blocks and copper, um, you know, even I think block five, which I know you're a big proponent of, and I, I love those guys too. I think, you know, at, at quite a high valuation, and we're talking in some cases, you know, 25 to 50 times revenue. Um, we sort of stayed away from those. Uh, our, our sweet spot is sort of between 500 million and around a billion five in, in valuation. And, you know, we're still, you know, finding that there are opportunities out there at, you know, 10 to 12 times revenue. We do a lot of, um, you know, digging in the secondary. So we, we sort of have an idea of what we want to buy. We have a map of the, of the you know, uh, the DAE, the digital asset ecosystem. We have our sectors that we want to populate with investments. And um, so, you know, we approach companies directly. Uh, we, you know, will buy stock directly from, you know, the, you know, the, the early, the early stage investors as well. So we're not always sort of waiting around for, um, you know, a series B or C sometimes like we did recently, um, you know, we'll, we'll preempt around if it's a company we really want to get, a, you know, get exposure to. Um, but the valuations have been, have been okay. Um, as I said, when you're in the secondary, you're not necessarily competing, uh, you know, with five, what I call, you know, newcomers or tourists or some of these very large growth equity funds. And I think you're talking about them when you, you're talking about crossover, um, you know, come into the space. And I mean, today we saw Silver Lake uh, put a $10 billion valuation on Alchemy. Uh, I don't even know what multiple uh, of revenue that is. I mean, I think it's stratospheric, but uh, I, would, I don't know the exact number. Um, you know, great for Alchemy. It's a great, phenomenal company. Um, you know, it was $3 billion three months ago or whenever, I, I, you know, 10 billion now. It, it's, um, we, we, we pass on those types of deals, even though, of course, you know, we, we like the company. I mean, I think we, we probably passed on over 100 deals last year. I mean, imagine that there were even 100 companies to look at. A lot of them were just too early. Um, we tend to look only at companies that have a valuation of, you know, sort of four or 500 million or more companies that are already making you know, 40, $50 million in revenue. Um, so look, the things that have been expensive uh, have stayed expensive, but there's a whole world underneath, uh, you know, the headlines, um, you know, the headline raises where valuations are still pretty reasonable. Uh, just this one stat, I love saying, you know, 18 months ago, there were 14 companies in the entire world uh, in the digital asset ecosystem. Again, crypto, blockchain, Bitcoin type companies, with a valuation of over a billion dollars, right? Only 14, and today they're close to 100. So, you know, that is an insane rate of growth. I mean, we talk about exponential growth uh, in the space all the time, and I, 
I say last year we did $60 trillion of total world cryptocurrency volume. And the year before was 10 and, and the, in 2019 was four. So, you know, what world has ever gone from $4 trillion, let's say a volume to 60 in two years? Um, you know, the right. private equity valuations, the private market valuations, almost impossible to keep up with what's going on in the underlying. So, how, do you, how do you think about a lot of these big, uh, whether they're financial institutions, big investors, or the the macro folks, the kind of the, the secret billionaire group, if you will, uh, holding Bitcoin specifically? One of the things I'm fascinated by is up until the last week or so, correlation between Bitcoin and other risk assets was dead on. And it seemed like a lot of the folks who had bought Bitcoin for the first time uh, in size from the legacy world over the last maybe two years, uh, they were treating Bitcoin like a risk asset. But then there's this like underlying kind of retail audience that treats it more like a reserve asset. Is that just too so, much of a generalization or, or how do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, I think there are two groups there. I think that the, you know, billionaire macro investors, as you call them, I do think they own some small percent of their portfolio of Bitcoin uh, and maybe a little Ethereum. And they they're holding it for the very long term. They they're not trading it. I think that there's another cohort of, you know, traders or uh, hedge fund traders uh, who are more active, um, who are probably, you know, uh, they've included it in their portfolio and, you know, they're probably managing risk through, you know, some sort of VAR model, which I think is, you know, antedated. But anyway, people are uh, antiquated. Uh, I think they're using it, um, you know, so it, it, it plays a part in their portfolio and it's part of their risk weighting. And so, when some of their other risk assets assets start to sell off, you know they think that you know Bitcoin should also sell off. Um, look, these are short term flows from short term traders. In my view, have absolutely no relevance uh, at all. It's just the ebb and flow of the markets. If you know someone like Paul came out and said, you know what, I'm out of Bitcoin. I just don't think it's interesting anymore. That's a that's a very different story. Uh, I, I don't think, you know, he's saying that I don't think the other uh, sort of larger uh, investor, well-known types, uh, I, I don't think they're in that world. So, again, you know, I would just stay away from this risk on, risk off. It's just, uh, frankly, it's just trading nonsense uh, that's been around in that world for, you know, probably 15, 10, 15 years. Uh, you're not you're not making any real money uh, playing that game. So, uh, again, you know, as far as the 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 real guys you're talking about, I don't think there's been any change at all. I uh, uh, I think a lot about like picking up pennies in front of the steamroller, right? And people are optimizing for a couple percent here or there in, in an asset class that goes up by tens, hundreds, or thousands of percent. Uh, probably not the smartest move, right? Yeah, but you know what? I wouldn't sort of denigrate that either. I mean, look, if they can take out those nickels, that's great for them. And as you know, there are some big firms in the crypto space, crypto native guys you know, like the GSRs out there, you know, they're, they're trading these markets. They've got a hundred guys, uh, you know, you know, my, uh, so, I, you know, if you've got a full fledged operation and that's your business model, then, you know, that's, that's great. Um, but as far as the sort of the big picture, and as you said, you know, what this asset is going to be worth in the future, um, already what it's done. I mean, we know it's been the single best performing asset really, in the history of the world. I mean, there's no asset that's gone up 200 plus percent annualized for 10 to 12 years, right? So um, I would stay, you know, focused on the long term here. 
Joe, John, what questions you guys got? Dan, my question would be around how most macro analysts are looking at this in general, right? You've been involved in the space for a long time and obviously looking at the macro side for a, for a long time also. How have those conversations changed over the last decade with uh, kind of what we'll call traditional macro investors? Over the last decade? I thought you were going to ask over the last month or two with the discussion well, about Well, yeah, inflation. maybe, maybe, maybe the mean, last year is I'll, better. Yeah, no, but I'll, I'll start with the first part. I mean, I would say that Look, the number of asymmetric opportunities uh, in the 90s and 2000s, uh, you know, were enormous. I mean, you had all sorts of um, fundamental misalignments. The ERM crisis um, uh, was one or, or crisis that, you know, the big convergence trade in Europe was um, really, um, you know, an exercise in understanding how politics uh, can uh, influence economics, but in in the wrong way. And then at the end of the day, uh, the fundamental macro, the economics, ended up uh, in, in in some cases prevailing, and not in not in others. But you had these big fundamental misalignments. The same thing with the Asian crisis in in ninety seven. Um, and of course, you know the big big difference. Um, is that most of the macro guys, so all of the guys that you know you know by reputation, uh, almost all of them made a substantial, I don't want to say all of their money, but certainly at least 70 to 80 percent of their money as a result of bond yields falling from their peak in, in the early 1980s. And so, you know, if you start in 1991, 92, 93, the two-year note was yielding 8 percent. I mean, the Japanese two-year note was yielding, you know, I don't even know now, nor, certainly north of 5%. And so you had very easy bets um, to make. In a sense, you could borrow money in the repo markets overnight at a lower rate that you can invest uh, in those two-year notes. And, you know, basically some of those guys, they, they rode those two-year notes for 20 years, all the way to zero, and with almost infinite leverage. Because when you buy bonds, the margin that you need to put down with your prime broker is practically zero. And so if you weren't a macro guy benefiting from that drop in interest rates, uh, you were an equity guy who was benefiting from uh, those drop, uh, the drop in the expansion in, um, you know, um, in, in the multiples that happened in the equity market, right? So um, in one sense, that entire macro game was based on that drop. And again, that was driven by an aberration uh, really in the 70s where we had this spiky inflation and they raised rates to you know, abnormal levels. And so we had a 20-year, 25-year period, disinflationary period, where all the central bankers sort of you know, lived in fear. Uh, They're all fighting the last battle in a sense. So they kept policy very tight. Uh, in my view, uh, interest rate policy was much tighter than it should have been uh, for, for many, many years. And so, and again, that you know culminated in, uh, in in some ways in the crisis in 08. And since 08, we've had permanently low yields because there's been too much debt accumulated in the system, um, and there you know also the advent of I would say technology uh, has been a permanent disinflationary force. And I think it'll be interesting going forward now uh, whether that reasserts itself. We've had spiky inflation because the money supplies uh, have exploded post the COVID. Uh, giveaway, um, which started in March of 20, I think it's going to be hard for them to pull it back. Very importantly, I would say going forward is, look, negative real interest rates are, are 7%. Okay, so the, 
the the overnight rate is around zero and CPI is seven is seven percent. So that means the cash you hold in your bank is worth minus seven percent a year. Okay, um, I think that it's going to take years and years for the Federal Reserve to bring on tight policy. Um, you know, I tight policy in, in my mind would be having the interest rate over the CPI rate. In March of 2000, the, the two-year note was uh, 6% and the CPI was 3%, right? So that was 3% positive real yield in the two-year. That's, that's tight policy. We're now completely the opposite way. Um, so I, I actually am quite positive, um, you know, medium term on, uh, on the markets, on, you know, the traditional, let's just say the equity market. I don't really focus too much on the legacy world anymore. Um, I, you know, very positive, of course, on Bitcoin, Ethereum, the digital asset ecosystem, all those new use cases, that whole world growing up, um, you know, very positive on that world. And, you know, look, um, this whole discussion, and this is to your last part of your question about, you know, the last few months in the Fed, um, you know, the Fed just mentions that it's going to raise interest rates. And, you know, we lose $15 trillion off the market cap of global stock markets. So in a sense, I think the stock market really already kind of tightened liquidity for the Fed. And I think as they, um, you know, as they raise rates, look, in my mind as an investor, I don't make any differentiation between a zero interest rate and a 1% interest rate or even a 2% interest rate. So, um, and then, you know, Pomp, I would wonder what your opinion is about this, but you look at the yields in the stablecoin market, you know, you get seven, eight percent in the DAE on a stablecoin. You know, what in, in, you know, for goodness sake, what are you doing owning legacy market, uh, legacy world bond markets, you know, $200 trillion of bonds in the legacy world, basically yielding less than 2% when you got a seven to 9% uh, yield in the stablecoin market. Yeah, to me, it feels just like there's a mismatch. Some people just don't know about it. Some people are scared. Uh, there's career risk, right? I mean, there's a whole bunch of things that go into it. Uh, but to your point, uh, they're going to flow, right? That capital will eventually flow into those markets. Uh, and the big question is just how quickly do those yields get compressed, right? Do we go from seven to nine to three to five? Uh, and that means that we take 50 billion and put it in there. Uh, you know, wh how does that exactly play out? I've seen a couple of models that people have tried to figure it out, but ultimately we just don't know until it happens. Um, but I do think that uh, it, it's a catch 22 for you, me, or anybody else who's participating, I don't want them to come yet, right? Let us keep getting eight, 9% uh, at the same know, time. It, I know. You know, it's going to happen, right? I think it's, I think it, you know, if we look at this year and I could leave your listeners with, you know, I, I always like to, you know, put myself on the hook a little bit. I mean, you know, like I did with my fund name, 10 T 10 trillion. Um, I, I think that is probably will be one of the biggest trends of this year. So if I look out this year, uh, and I think it's going to be significantly more than 50 billion. It's just a matter of uh, letting people know, telling people this is why you can get this kind of yield. I don't think it's, you know, it's not that easy to explain in a sense. And I think the legacy guys are all, you know, they're like, well, if I'm getting 9%, something must be wrong, right? Absolutely. Um, how does that work, right? I, you know, oh, it's so confusing. But if you're somebody who can explain to them why they're getting it, 
Um, I think it's, um, you know, you're going to see hundreds of billions of dollars flow. And remember, and this is what I tell everybody, this is not the DAE, Bitcoin, crypto is not a U.S. business. It is a global business. 90% of total world cryptocurrency volume happens outside of the U.S. So if the U.S. banking authorities decide, you know, okay, this is no good and people aren't allowed to do this one way or another, I, I don't know. I really don't think it's going to have that much effect big picture, right? This is this is maybe the first truly global, and I've said this many times, global macro event, macro investment uh, of all time. We've never had anything that every single person on the planet could actually get involved in, every country, every socioeconomic strata. Um, you know, I just, I hope the U.S. understands what this is and actually becomes a place where people want to start businesses, um, you know, Singapore, you have Tug in Switzerland, you've got Puerto Rico. There are a few places that are, you know, very welcoming uh, to the crypto community. I just hope the U.S. Um, gets behind it um, and doesn't lose out on all the gains and benefits of uh, the innovation. Yeah, I completely agree. Uh, we got two last questions for you. John's got one, and then I got one. John, what you got for us? Dan, nice to see you again. Um, you guys have an impressive portfolio of companies that you put together since 2020. What are the companies or subsectors you guys are going for with this fund three? Actually, our first purchase was in uh, late January of 2021. Mm. Um, so <laughs> we were we we're very busy. Um, the 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 subsectors in this uh, new fund we've got a digital asset ecosystem gateways. Um, so that would be, you know, and that's a smaller percent. That was a, in the first two funds we launched, that was a, a third of those two. We've reduced that um, percentage to just 15% of this third fund. Uh, we have something called New Era DAE businesses, um, DAE infrastructure, and then we have a bucket for NFT and metaverse companies. And again, it's it's roughly uh, equal to each bucket. And then we populate the bucket, the buckets with, um, you know, two to four companies in each bucket. And, you know, that's the way we think you have a sort of broad diversified portfolio to the key um, things happening in the space. And so our bet really is that the space goes from, you know, it's worth call it two and a half, three trillion dollars today. Again, I originally thought it was going to go to 10 T, 10 trillion. <laughs> I'm going to be wrong about that. It looks like it's going to go probably to 30, 40 trillion um, over the next, you know, eight to 10 years. Dan, last question for you. I know you take yeah. your health very seriously, as do we. We, we are uh, big health fanatics over here. Uh, one of our sponsors is Eight Sleep. They've got a thermo-regulated uh, bed. And, uh, people have probably heard me talk about it too much. I sleep like a baby because I just turn it super cold. What's your sleep uh, routine? Have you changed anything now that the world's kind of opened up post, uh, post-pandemic? No, um, not that much. I will tell you, I sort of conquered my sleep issue probably when I was about the same age you were. Uh, sleep is the the most important thing. I get eight hours every single day. If I don't get eight, I don't wake up. So <laughs> meaning I, 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 I just nothing functions, nothing works. Um, that's the number one priority. Uh, I actually like it a little warmer. My wife's not thrilled with that often. Um, but you know I, I, I do like I do like the warmer uh, temperature, even though I know it's more healthy and I've been told a hundred times that it should be colder. but um, seriously, if you're uh, a, a young guy and I know when you're young, you think you can just like battle through everything and you can't, I mean, young, 20 years old, you can, 
Um, but when I hit my early 30s and I was really working hard, um, you start making a lot of mistakes. Um, and then you realize that those mistakes just, you know, it's, it just take a lot to come back from. So eight hours every day. And I would just say, um, make it a routine, right? It's very important that you have a kind of routine. I, uh, uh, I couldn't agree know. more. And, uh, yeah. uh, about the same as you, like now, if I don't get eight hours, I feel it. I could literally tell you how I feel in the morning that it could, because I've paid attention and measured it. I could tell you like, yeah, I probably got seven or I got seven and a half. I got eight. I got more than eight. Right. You just can tell I'm the same way. Yeah. I, I'm the same way. I mean, every once in a while, you've got to take yourself out of your, your rhythm. So, I mean, I, I always believe in never cutting anything out completely cold Turkey. I mean, you know, I've played around with my diet a ton over the past 25 years and, you know, I've had initially, you know, I had a big weight gain and weight loss over the sort of, you know, my twenties and early thirties. Um, you know, I, I, one of my mantras is, you know, I, I've cut out uh, pretty much milk products completely and things that my body just can't handle anymore, but I never cut anything out 100%. It's always sort of 90%. I mean, if I see a slice of pizza there, you know, and it's looking good, you know, I'm going to have that slice of pizza. I'm just not going to have pizza every day, you know, or even every week necessarily. So um, it's just about, you know. Oh, you're a rational person. That's the second part you learn after you've got your sleep and your diet under control. Then you realize, then then you work on balance and you figure out, you know, because you don't want to become so rigid that like you're only eating carrots all day. Right. And, uh, you know, and you start turning orange. And, uh, no, you, you know, so again, balance and going out for a few drinks also every once in a while, that's healthy too. Right. You just don't do that every night. Right? Yeah. I've learned so much from you from a macroeconomic standpoint. And, uh, uh, now we, we are sleep buddies and hopefully I will learn more about balance over time as well. So you keep the lessons coming. I'll keep listening, but I appreciate you. Uh, you taking the time to come on. Uh, we've got, I think your Twitter account here. Anyone who's not following Dan, let's go. He, uh, he needs as many followers as he can get 88,000. We're closing in on a hundred K which is a big deal. Yeah, so I, gotta yeah. keep going. <laughs> what? I don't know. I'm, I'm just, uh, age adjusted. Uh, I think I'm doing just great. <laughs> <laughs> hey, listen, you get to a hundred K when you get to a hundred K, I'll send you like a little hundred K, uh, cake or something. All right. right? <laughs> All right. Listen, thank you so much for coming on. Uh, Thanks, huge guys. fan as always of, uh, of everything you guys are doing and we'll definitely do this again in the future. Great. Wonderful. Nice seeing you. All right. Bye. Done. Thanks so much for listening to today's episode. I really hope you guys enjoyed this one. Make sure you're subscribed on Apple, Spotify, or your favorite podcast player. And if you're looking to try to transition to get a new job in the Bitcoin or crypto industry, we've got you covered. Head over to pompscryptocourse.com. We've developed a curriculum with the top teams across the industry. It's a three-week intensive training program with over 50 events packed into that three-week time period. Go to pompscryptocourse.com to learn more, and I'll meet you guys for the next episode.